I want y'all to go ahead and turn to 7-1. You know, before, before you can worry about any medication and all the things that you have to know about a medication, um, I guess first and foremost, you have to understand the drug profile. What is it that, what's the components of this medication uh, that you need to be familiar with so you could do the things that, that you need to do? Table 7-1 does say the components of a drug profile. When you make out your little, uh, and again, I encourage you to make little uh, index cards with all these medications and all these components on there so you can kind of use them as flashcards to learn them. But the first thing is going to be the, you know, um, the medication name. How many different names would one medication have? Is it at least three, right? First, you're going to have the generic name. Then you're going to have the trade name. And you have the chemical name. Now, the chemical name's probably about this long. And if you can pronounce it, you'd probably be my personal hero, okay? But the things you understand, each name has its own role. The generic name is, is just that. It is a name that's loosely based on the chemical name. Uh, the trade name is whenever you see the one and it's capitalized, if the name is capitalized or has a little, a little R with a circle around it uh, at, at the end of it or a little TM which stands for trademark and a circle around it, that's the name that the drug manufacturers use for marketing purposes, okay? And uh, so the, the trade name is for marketing. The generic name and the chemical names, probably the names that you'll find in the United States Pharmacopoeia. What is the United States Pharmacopoeia? Does anybody know? It's a list of drugs. Well, every organization has its own. Like, for example, the Army's got its pharmacopoeia, which is the drugs that the VA supplies. If there's a nationwide one, then I would imagine it's everything that's FDA approved. Yeah, that's correct. If, if United States Pharmacopoeia is a list of, of medications by chemical and or generic names, and it is a list of all the medications that's gone through that nine-year FDA approval process. It is the list of medications that are approved for use in the United States. So first you need to know the drug name or the medication name. And the names drugs and medications, it's kind of used synonymously. Uh, we prefer medication over drugs, but a lot of times it doesn't happen. Once you have the name, you have to be familiar with the classification. Uh, what type of drug is it? What is it used for? The classification. Then the mechanism of action. That basically is what does this medication do? Okay. How does it work? Uh, what is its intended purpose? The uh, mechanism of action. Then you got your indications and contraindications. Indications, what is the reason we are given this medication or what's the reason behind taking this medication? And a contraindication is um, it's when the medication should not be given. And I guess the, the best example of a contraindication that always comes to my mind is when you're talking about a sublingual nitroglycerin uh, and if someone is hypotensive, if their systolic pressure isn't over 100 millimeters of mercury, you will not give them nitroglycerin. It doesn't matter how bad their chest is hurting because 
the, does anybody know what nitro does? Why is that a bad idea to give somebody nitro if their blood pressure is already low? Phasodilator. Phasodilator. It's going to make their pressure even lower. That's that's correct. Okay. If that happens, like, are you going to do like push a bunch of fluids to get their you, pressure you, up? You, you're probably going to start compressions because it's probably going it's probably going to take them out. If they're already hypotensive and you give them nitro, the pressure's going to bottom out. They'll probably go into cardiac arrest. And then if you, if you catch it before you give them nitro, and you need to Yeah, them you nitro. can bolus them with fluids, but that's, that's advanced talk right there. All right. But, but yes, that, that is something that, we, that is done in the field quite a bit. Side effects and adverse effects. What are the side effects? The therapeutic effects, that's what you want the medication to do, right? So what are side effects or adverse effects? Those are the unintended, I guess, effects, right? It's not really so bad that it's going to prevent you from giving it. Just like albuterol is a vasodilator, excuse me, a bronchodilator, but it causes tachycardia as well. The tachycardia is an unintended effect. It's a side effect. Okay. <clears throat> then we're going to look at routes of administration. If you would flip forward to page, all right, where is it? Table seven dash five, page two thirty three. These are the routes of administration. Okay. You've got PR which is per rectum. Will EMTs or advanced EMTs give any medication per rectum? No. Will not. That's a paramedic level. All right. Then you've got oral. And you've got IV, which is basically, basically placing the medication directly into the vein itself, which is the fastest way to deliver the medication because all medication regardless of the route of administration the medication is trying to reach where it's trying to get to the bloodstream okay so if you're putting it directly in the bloodstream that's the fastest way to deliver the medication obviously then you've got intraosseous or IO that's where you drill it straight into the leg bone or the, or the humeral head and push the medication into the center of the bone then you've got subcutaneous, uh, book here uh, has it as SC, but it's also, you see it as sub-Q a lot, S-U-B-Q. There's not really a Q in it, but it's cutaneous, that's under the skin, right? So cutaneous sounds like it's got a Q in it, so I guess that's why we've always done that. Uh, intramuscular, IM, uh, inhalation, sublingual, which is under the tongue like nitro and then you got transcutaneous like patches on the skin that are designed to deliver medication and you can see the rate at which they are absorbed uh, right there on the right hand side so you're looking at how uh, the routes of administration how is it supplied how is it packaged and again we'll get into that more in advance 
will basically have to do drug calculations because if a doctor asks you to give four milligrams of something that comes in a 25 milligram vial, you've got to figure out how much liquid to pull out to get those four milligrams. And it's really easy. How many of y'all remember your equations in ninth grade? None of you. <laughs> equations. You know what you've got? You solving for x or y or whatever, and you got the equal sign in the middle. No, not to put that's a squared plus b squared equals c squared. It's got nothing to do with this. No. It is basic algebra, yes. So anyhow, but we'll get to that in advance. But we're gonna have to figure that out. Then you're gonna look at the dosages. The dosages, that, that, that's the amount of medication that's going to deliver that therapeutic effect that we're all looking for. And those things are predetermined a lot of times during that nine years of testing with the FDA, right? And then special considerations. Whenever you see a special consideration for medication, uh, you're probably looking at the, the pregnancy category and things of that nature because there's a lot of these medications that you don't, you don't, just don't need to give to a lady that's pregnant, okay? So, we're going to start talking about albuterol. And if you see um, the left-hand column on, on these drug profiles that are in here, you see the class mechanism of action indications, contraindications, adverse reactions, which are also known as what? Side effects. Side effects, okay. Drug interactions that you might need to know about, how it's supplied, the route of administration, <coughs> dosage and administration, duration of action, and special considerations. Um, and you need to know all of these for each of these medications, okay? Now, which medications at the EMT level, which medications can you administer? Oxygen. Oxygen. Oral glucose, and then you can assist them. That's the big thing. You know, of course, textbook purposes or whatever, you know, before at the EMT level, before you do anything, you're supposed to check with who first? Medical control. You know, tell them what you got, what you'd like to do, and then you can assist them with their nitroglycerin. You can assist them with their, their chewable, uh, chewable aspirin if they have it or whatever. Um, but of course, now that changes a little bit when we get to advanced because you'll you'll have your own medications that you can uh, administer. Um, uh, of course, now textbook, you'll always check with medical control first, but in reality, you may have standing orders for certain things and you may or may not have to do that. But let's look at uh, uh, albuterol. Class drug as a sympathomimetic or a bronchiodilator. If something is a sympathomimetic, We've talked about mimetic, and that kind of sounds like mimic, right? So if something is a sympathomimetic, how do you think it's going to affect the body? What are some of the things that you think a sympathomimetic would do for the body? It's going to do something where your 
where your brain doesn't necessarily control it because it's part of the autonomic system. Right, that's correct. I, you know, and that's, that's the thing about all the medications that, that we administer or assist with administering. A lot of times they are working on the autonomic nervous system. Sympathetic and parasympathetic, right? Yeah. So if something that has a sympathetic response of the autonomic nervous system, it typically does what? It speeds up body processes like heart rate, respiratory rate. So if something has a sympathomimetic and you give it, what do you think it's going to do to the heart rate? It's going to increase it. What's it going to do to the respiratory rate? It's kind of going to increase that too. It's going to maybe uh, give the person uh, uh, nervousness, uh, a little anxiety, or whatever because it's speeding up or jacking up the sympathetic side of the autonomic nervous system okay but it's a sympathomimetic and it's a bronchiodilator because for the most part when when is uh when will we give albuterol who what patients will get albuterol asthma, asthma patients or patients who are having difficulty in breathing right COPD. they may yeah because a lot of times they'll wheeze too but um now, indications for albuterol, well, what are some, some other names for albuterol to begin with? And if you look at the top of the page, you'll see albuterol, then you'll see two of them in parentheses, provental and venolin. Those are capitalized, right? So what type of names are those? Trade, Trade names, it's for marketing purposes. purposes, that's correct, okay? A bronchiodilator. Um, Albuterol is a beta-2 agonist. I've told y'all an agonist does what? Kind of makes things happen. An antagonist kind of prevents things from happening. So it's a beta-2 agonist. <clears throat> All right, so albuterol we just read was a beta-2 agonist. If you look at table 7-4, you got alpha-1, alpha-2, beta-1, and beta-2 responses. These are things, these are receptor sites in the body that these medications will affect and cause things to happen. So if, if albuterol is a beta-2 agonist, that means it's going to cause these beta-2 effects. Does that make sense? And the beta-2 effects are bronchodilation and vasodilation. Okay. So if someone has, is having an asthma attack, for example, and, and they take their albuterol, it's going to open up their bronchial tree, right? Because it's a beta-2 agonist, and that's, those, are what beta, those are the beta-2 effects. Y'all picking up what I'm putting down? Okay. All right. So albuterol is a beta-2 agonist that stimulates the adrenergic receptors of the sympathomimetic nervous system. It causes smooth muscle relaxation in the bronchial tree and peripheral vasculature. Another thing, a lot of times these people are having difficulty breathing if they have fluid in their lungs and you cause the vasculature, the peripheral vasculature to dilate, that allows excess fluid to pool in, lo in, other, in other places, right? So if it's pooling a little bit in the feet or whatever because of this vascular dilation, it's not getting where. If, if it's pulling in the feet and in the abdomen and places like that, it's not getting to the lungs. So therefore, it's not adding to the problem. Y'all with me? But why would it pull? I don't understand. 
because albuterol causes that peripheral vasodilation. It, it causes the vessels, and when they dilate, it loses pressure a little bit, so, so the blood and, and the fluid will kind of pool in those areas. But it keeps it away from the, yeah. Mm -hmm. All right, so the indications of albuterol is treatment of bronchospasm in patients with reversible obstructive airway disease like COPD and asthma. Uh, basically, if someone's wheezing or has a condition that causes them to wheeze, uh, they, they're probably going to have a prescription for albuterol. All right. When is albuterol contraindicated? If there's a known prior hypersensitivity, in other words, if they're allergic to albuterol, and that's always a contraindication. If I ask you for the contraindication of medication ABC, it doesn't matter. Hypersensitivity is always one correct answer. Now, there's multiple correct answers, but you always ask before you administer any medication, you ask and make sure that they're not allergic to that medication prior to giving it to them. Because once it's in, remember I told you, my bad dog don't work, right? It, it's going to do what it does once it's in. So, all right. Uh, so the contraindications are also tachycardia arrhythmias, especially those caused by digitalis, uh, and they'll be synergistic with other sympathomimetics. Basically, if they've got irregular or bad heart rates that are fast in nature to begin with, and then you give them a beta-2 agonist, so you give them this albuterol, that's just going to make their heart rate even faster, right? And therefore, that abnormal rhythm is going to get worse. Okay. Um, what, what's the? Um, well, I don't want to skip too far ahead. But adverse reactions to albuterol—they're often dose-related. Includes restlessness, tremors, dizziness, palpitations, tachycardia, nervousness, peripheral vasodilation, nausea, vomiting. Remember, anything that, might, that causes blood pressure to rise really fast or drop really fast will always produce nausea. Uh, hyperglycemia, increased blood pressure, paradoxical bronchospasm. It's even possibly, if you, whenever you see paradoxical in front of something, that means it's right opposite of what you think it should be, right? It's a paradox, if you will. Uh, sometimes, in, in, in rare cases, you can give albuterol and it can cause their bronchial tree to shut down, even though it's designed to cause uh, relaxation of the bronchial tree. Uh, albuterol can interact with tricyclic antidepressants. Beta blockers are antagonistic to albuterol. What did I say in English? beta blockers are going to prevent the effects of albuterol or at least slow it down tremendously, right? Because why is that, why is that true? Why is a beta blocker going to affect the ability of albuterol? Because albuterol is what classification of medication? Beta it's a beta 2. So it's going to block it. Okay? Alright, how is it supplied? So, 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 Chief, if they're on some patients on some medication that you're unaware of, 
maybe they're on a beta blocker and you're wondering why the albuterol is not working that could be Absolutely, it could be. Yeah, that's why it's, it's important to get your sample history. Now, if someone has asthma or they're wheezing, having difficulty breathing, even if you know that they're on something that might kind of dull the effects, it's probably still not contraindicated. Okay. Difficulty breathing is difficulty breathing. You, you got to correct that. So, uh, at the EMT level, how will we deliver albuterol? Nope. At the EMT level, how will we deliver albuterol? How will we assist the patient with his or her albuterol? The meter dose inhaler, right? The MDI. Uh, what's the dosage of a meter dose inhaler? Each time you depress the canister, that's one dose, right? It's, that's just metered. Each dose is supposed to be the same as the other. What are the... Um, the um, administration procedures. How do we, how do we uh, use a meter dose inhaler? It needs to be stored at what temperature to begin with? Just kind of room temperature, right? But if you take that meter dose inhaler, it that medication that's in there is kind of like in a suspension. You got to shake it for a little bit, right? You always see them kind of shaking it a little bit, and that's to kind of get the medication off of the bottom, if you will. Shake it for about 10 seconds, okay? And then it's a, it's a timed event, right? You need to have them exhale, inhale and exhale uh, as much as they can. And then as they're inhaling again, depress the canister as they are inhaling. And they need to hold their breath as long as they can, at least for about 10 seconds, I guess. And then they can exhale. Um, is uh, what about pediatric patients? Is it always easy to do that timed thing with, with a child? Yeah, there's something called a spacer, and it's spelled just like it sounds, S-P-A-C-E-R. It is a chamber that you can put on the meter dose inhaler, kind of shake it, put it on there, then depress the canister, then the medication gets inside of that chamber, then the child can just breathe in as he or she wants to. It's not a it's not a timed thing, okay? So at the EMT level, that's how we administer albuterol, through a meter dose inhaler. Uh, and we can talk more about the uh, nebulized albuterol. That's the machine, I guess, or the, the oxygen pushed way that we deliver it in the back of the ambulance typically. Uh, special considerations, albuterol has a pregnancy Category C. Pregnancy category C. Albuterol is antagonized by beta blockers. Basically, if you've got a medication that ends in OLOL or LOL, we ain't laughing out loud, okay? But if a medication is OLOL at the end of it, that means that's a beta blocker. And it means they have been diagnosed with what medical condition probably? Hypertension, high blood pressure. Because these are beta blockers. That's one of the two main ways that doctors try to control um, high blood pressure. Okay? So hopefully you're writing some of this down that we're saying because all the stuff we just said about albuterol is what you need to know. Any, any questions about that at all? Any questions about albuterol?
Who's going to get it? Difficulty breathing, wheezing, asthma, COPD patients, okay? And uh, what classification of medication is it? Well, it's a sympathomimetic or bronchodilator, but it is a beta-2 agonist. That's the mechanism of action. That is correct. Uh, what are some of these side effects or adverse reactions? Okay, yeah, whole big old long list, right? Because remember, it is a sympathomimetic, right? It's going to speed things up. You can look at these adverse reactions, and you can tell that the body's sped up, right? It's kind of like, like a huge adrenaline dump almost, okay? No questions about albuterol. All right, now let's talk about aspirin. What class drug is aspirin? What does it do? It's a platelet inhibitor, anti-inflammatory agent. Basically, it prevents the platelets in your bloodstream from clotting or sticking together. It, it kind of prevents them from doing that. Therefore, it doesn't, uh, basically, it's going to prevent the formation of additional clots. It might, it doesn't really break up a clot or whatever, but it's just, it's an anticoagulant for, it, it makes the blood a little bit thinner, okay? Um, yeah, anti-inflammatory, yeah. But that's not really why we would give it, okay? To begin with, when we're in the pre-hospital environment, if we're gonna give somebody aspirin or assist them with their aspirin, what type of aspirin are we typically gonna be given? Well, let me ask you this, for what reasons might we assist someone with taking aspirin? Chest pains. That's the biggest reason, right? So if they're having chest pains in, until we get them to the hospital, we assume the chest pain is a myocardial infarction. And if that be the case, then we know one of those coronary arteries has kind of gotten clogged, right? And is preventing the blood flow through either the right or left coronary artery, right? So we're going to allow them to chew Okay, and that's the type of aspirin that we give. We give chewable baby, uh, we don't call it baby aspirin anymore, but chewable aspirin, which are 81 milligrams a piece, okay? People who have a cardiac history, if you ask them what medications they take, they're probably, probably gonna tell you they take 81 milligrams of aspirin a day. They chew one baby aspirin a day to help prevent those platelets from sticking together inside of their coronary arteries, okay? What does enteric mean? What is what? Enteric. Enteric aspirin. <clears throat> I think it's like, like it's coated and things of that nature, I think. But now ours is chewable, and again, it's normally the 81 milligrams. So, and I know your book says something a little bit different. It says we give 320, uh, 325, 326 milligrams, uh, 160 chewed, 160 swallowed. But in reality, you're not going to give them any water to drink, okay? So 
you're not going to give them 160 and 160. It's going to be 324 milligrams of chewable aspirin is what you're going to do. All right, that's how many tablets at 81 milligrams you have to give to get 324? Four of them, okay? You give them four chewable aspirin. Because if someone is having a potential or potentially having a heart attack, what are the signs and symptoms that they'll have? Is nausea not one of them? It very well could be. So if you're giving them 160 and giving them water to swallow them with, could that make them throw up? Absolutely. Then you got a whole aspiration thing. So the, the book says 160 and 160, but in reality, it's 324 milligrams of chewable aspirin is what you're going to do. Okay. Indications for aspirin is a new onset chest pain suggestive of myocardial infarction. Again, at the EMT level, you will be assisting them with theirs. And it's as simple as that. If, now, what if they tell you they've already chewed one? So they've already chewed 81 milligrams. What would you do at that point? Just give them three more. Just take them, put three in the palm of your hand, and let them get them out and chew them up. And chew them up. When might the aspirin be contraindicated? Everybody should be able to give me at least one. Hypersensitivity, right? If you have an alert, if uh, uh, have an allergy to the medication, uh, hypersensitivity, uh, relatively contraindicated in patients with active ulcer disease or asthma. What might what might uh, aspirin do to an asthma patient? All right. Absolutely. Uh, aspirin may cause an asthma patient to wheeze. But now if they're having a heart attack or potentially having a heart attack, that's a relative contraindication. But it's not a true contraindication, right? If they wheeze a little bit, that's just what that's going to be. If they're having chest pain and, they, and they've got this aspirin, you want to assist them with 324 milligrams. Just be aware of that, okay? Could a recent surgery be a contraindication? A recent surgery uh, could could potentially be, especially if it was really, really recent, because right. if they've just been cut on and you thin that blood out, it could cause a bleeding situation. So, so is that like a medical control type? Absolutely. Okay. Call the doc, call medical control, see what they say. Um, adverse reactions that may cause heartburn, GI uh, bleeding, Prolonged bleeding, nausea, vomiting, and again, wheezing uh, in allergic patients or in uh, asthma, asthma patients as well. Aspirin supplied 81 milligrams. That's what you're going to see. The route is oral. And the dosage in administration, it says 160 milligrams to 325 milligrams PO. Um, chewed if possible but again in reality that math just doesn't add up they're 81 milligram tablets you are a special individual if you can actually give 325 I would be impressed okay so it's 324 uh, pregnancy uh, safety category D and it's not recommended in, P in the pediatric population. Anything else about aspirin? 
this is kind of like for all right the next medication that I told you you needed to know about was epinephrine what class medication is epinephrine it kind of has some of the same effects as albuterol right so it would be a sympathomimetic as well the mechanism of action for epinephrine is a direct acting alpha and beta agonist causes vasoconstriction uh, on the heart, we're looking at beta-1, inotropic, chronotropic, and dromotropic effects. It's going to speed everything up, okay? Beta-2, bronchial smooth muscle relaxation and dilation of the skeletal vasculature. So there's some similarities to albuterol, right, when you're looking at the bronchial tree in the, va in the vasculature space. Who's going to get epinephrine? At the EMT level, who's going to get it and, and which way, will, what route will we use to deliver it? Anaphylaxis. And Anaphylaxis. The pen. Yeah, but we don't stab though, right? right. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, no, it is the, the ep epinephrine auto-injector is what we use at the EMT level. Uh, and basically what we do with that is you've got, they've got, make sure it's prescribed to them. Do we remember the six rights? Have we talked about the six rights of medication administration? All the things that you need to check and have before you ever give the medication. So everybody write these down for me. Again, these are the six rights of medication administration. To begin with, you got to make sure you have the right patient. It has to be prescribed to that person. Not their husband, not their wife, not their next door neighbor, cousin-in-law, none of them folks. Has to be prescribed to that patient before you can help it help them take their medication, okay? Right patient. You're gonna make sure it's the right dose, okay? You gotta make sure you're gonna get that therapeutic effect. There's some medications that um, and I'm not going to throw specific names out because it's just going to cloud the mind and it won't be in your scope of practice. So, but just know there's some medications that maybe it's supposed to make the heart beat faster and stronger at certain dosages. But if you give, the, give it in the wrong dosage, it does just the opposite. It makes the heart weaker. So you got to make sure you're giving the right dose, okay? You got to make sure you got the right medication or the right drug. You need to read it on the label. Then have your partner in the back of the ambulance read it in the back, uh, read the label in the back of the ambulance. And then just read it yourself again. You want to make absolutely sure that you got the right medication. Because again, once it's in their body, <coughs> my bad dog don't work. Okay? It, it's going to do what it does. Okay? So you got to make sure you got the right medication. 
Then you got to make sure you're administering it through the right route, okay? If, it, if it's designed to go IV, and again, I know this is advanced, but you get the point. If it's designed to be pushed IV and you go IM, it might not be effective. Uh, or if you go intramuscular and it's supposed to be sublingual, or, and I'm kind of just making up stuff now, but right route is important because it all has been studied over those nine years that this medication was with the FDA and the route and the dosage and all these things add toward whether you're going to get that therapeutic effect or not, okay? So we got the right patient, right dose, right drug, right route. <clears throat> then you got to look at the right time. Has it expired or is it still in date? Okay? You got to make sure that the medication is good. It has not expired. And then the last one. Write documentation. You will document when the actual time you administered a medication or assisted somebody with their medication. And then what are you going to do three to five minutes after you've assisted them with medication? Another set of vital signs. You got to see if it worked. Did it provide the, the therapeutic effect that we were looking for? Did it make things better? Did it make things worse? Or did, or did nothing really change at all? Okay? So those are the six rights of medication administration. All right? So getting back to uh, epinephrine, it is a sympathomimetic. Like I said, it's a direct acting alpha and beta agonist. Epinephrine is indicated for allergic reactions or severe allergic reactions, uh, also known as anaphylaxis, and then asthma, okay? And whenever, and again, at the EMT level, we're looking at epinephrine auto-injectors, and they'll have to have this prescription. They'll have to have it with them. So if you come up to somebody who's got urticaria, pruritus, they're itching really bad, they're wheezing, they tell you, yeah, I'm allergic to hornets, whatever the case may be, and I got stung by a hornet, ask them, where's your EpiPen? If they have an allergy that, that is this severe, they're going to know exactly where that EpiPen is because that's the difference between life or death for them, okay? So once you get it in your hand, okay, uh, the, the, the procedures that you use to administer it, a lot of times you're going to go on the lateral thigh, okay? Um, because that's you typically where there's enough meat that, to handle the, the little needle. But if you take it and you hold it, you don't stab it in the side of their leg. You just put it on the side of their leg and gently increase the amount of pressure that you're pushing. And, and then eventually there's a spring in there that's going to be activated and the needle will come out. It will enter the uh, muscle on the lateral thigh. Um, it'll, it'll pass through blue jeans as well so you don't have to worry about the pants. And you hold it there for at least 10 seconds. But there's a little sight glass on the side of it that basically you'll see the plunger moving. And once the plunger stops moving, then obviously you could take it out because it's done. Once you've, did the, once you've done the epinephrine auto-injector, it should instantly go where? 
in a sharps container because it is a needle it will get you okay now what if someone had like a you know like that almost you know death experience with that but they didn't know it so they didn't have an epipen what would you do then <laughs> you better hope we get us a paramedic on the scene fast enough to or an advanced EMT because they'll have their own epinephrine. Okay. okay. They have to have epinephrine or they're going to die. Yeah. Well, that's what I, so, I didn't know if they carried. Yeah. Um, so the epinephrine auto injector, you've got the, the EpiPen and you've got the EpiPen Junior. Obviously, the Junior is for pediatric patients. The dosage of epinephrine for EpiPen is 3.0 milligrams. 3.0 milligrams. EpiPen Junior is 1.5 milligrams. I think uh, it's saying 0.3 to 0.5. Yeah. They, uh, yeah. No, that's that's not an EpiPen right there. That's in this card right here. EpiPen's 3.0, EpiPen Junior's 1.5. And again, there's really no, in a life-saving emergency like anaphylaxis, there really is no true contraindication. They've got to have it or they're going to die. One point five milligrams. All right. Uh, as far as the EpiPen is zero point three milligrams, and then the uh, EpiPen Junior is zero point one five. It's still half. And that's not always the case. There are certain weight-based drugs, and, and in reality, they look at how fast the medication is metabolized. But as a general rule, if, if, if you don't know otherwise, pediatric doses, dosages are typically half. And again, it is not what I said earlier. It's 0.3 milligrams for the adult and 0.15 for pediatric. And if you look on page 705, you can see a, a picture of an EpiPen. It's, a, it's just an auto-injector. And, um, and I'd say if you want to see a picture of it, there it is on page 705. Any questions about epinephrine or the epinephrine auto-injector? All right. The next one you need to know at the EMT level is naloxone or Narcan. Um, I used to not lecture on Narcan until we got too advanced, but what happened July of last year as far as the state laws in Georgia? You can buy Narcan over the counter now. They also have it to where if uh, you and your buddy's out doing some narcotics, and your buddy overdoses, what did they used to do? What did they used to do for their friends back before last year? 
<laughs> they just kind of drop them off on the curb out in front of the emergency room because they didn't want to go to jail for doing the narcotics, right? Well, they changed that law. Now, basically, if you're doing this, uh, this illegal narcotics and somebody overdoses, you can bring them to the emergency room without fear of prosecution. And you can buy Narcan over the counter, okay? Naloxone is the generic name. N-A-L-O-X-O-N-E's generic. Narcan is the trade name that is used for marketing purposes. It is a narcotic antagonist. Again, it prevents the effects of the narcotics on your body. Uh, the mechanism of action is competitive inhibition of narcotic receptor sites. Uh, it reverses respiratory depression, secondary to depressant drugs, completely inhibits the effects of morphine. Morphine is just a type of a narcotic. What, where do narcotics come from? What plant? Opium. Opium, Opium or marijuana comes from... Yeah, but that wouldn't be a narcotic, though. Narcotic is opium-based. Whether it be that's for, in the natural form, the the synthetic version is an opioid. Okay, but it's still you're looking at something coming from the opium plant. That's where your narcotics come from. What about cocaine? That's that's not a narcotic. That is a um, it's a stimulant. Okay. All right. So these. Naloxone counteracts or inhibits narcotics, and narcotics come from the opium plant. The synthetic version or the man-made version is an opioid, but you're looking at uh, morphine. You're, you're looking at, uh, I just, I'm drawing a blank, but the uh, fentanyl, the uh, car fentanyls that you hear about a lot now. You're looking at the uh, Vicodin, all these other things. These are narcotics. Oxycontin's a narcotic. Okay, so it would reverse those. Uh, what do narcotics affect? What, what, what do they, how do they affect the body? The yeah, that's true. They do affect the res respiratory system because narcotics are a central, they are central nervous system depressants. Okay, and the central nervous system, brain spinal cord, right? And that's where your breathing's controlled, or really everything, heart rate, all the blood pressure, and everything else. But the breathing is the big problem with these narcotic overdoses, okay? Uh, naloxone would be indicated for an opiate overdose. Coma, if they're, if they're in a coma, if they're unconscious, and you don't know why they're unconscious, there's several things that you could do. One is going to be give them some, some naloxone. It could be a narcotic overdose. You're probably going to check the sugar or give them sugar if you don't have a way of checking sugar. It could be that. Um, but it's a, for opiate overdose, coma, complete or partial reversal of central nervous system and respiratory depression. Uh, decreased level of consciousness. Like we was just saying, coma of unknown origin. Uh, morphine, heroin. Hydromorphone, which is dilaudid, methadone, meperdine, <clears throat> paragoric, fentanyl, which is also called sublimase, oxycodone, percodan, codeine. There's a whole big old long list of them. But they counteract 
are an antagonist to narcotics. Okay? Nothing for nothing, do we know why, why heroin's making a comeback? Because it feels good. I take your word on that one. <laughs> what? Nobody knows what, and I'm not making it up. Heroin's on a comeback because for years and years and years, people go get these narcotics and the doctors were just kind of not really being that, I guess, selective about who they give prescriptions to for pain medications. Well, then people started getting addicted to these things or, or they just liked them a lot because it, I guess, feels good, huh? And then, uh, so now that they're starting to crack down on these regulations a little bit, and some of these prescriptions, these, these pill farms that, that were little doctor's offices that, that kind of popped up, and that's what they were doing a lot was just writing prescriptions. Now that these things are being shut down, um, heroin kind of mimics the feel of some of these prescription pain pills, so they say. So that's why heroin's on the comeback. They're trying to get that same high that they had from the prescription pain pills. And apparently, heroin kind of comes close. The opium, heroin comes from opium. Mm -hmm. And there was the, the two main drug, uh, the two main plants are opium and cocaine, coca leaves. Mm -hmm. But they're totally different as far as the reaction. That's correct. It, it, and I guess to put it in other terms, I guess it'd be like wine and and bourbon, I guess. It, it's still, you know, you're going to get that sensation, but they're different classes. They work, they come from different places. Wine comes from the grape, corn produces the bourbon. I mean, like opium-based is the world's greatest painkiller. Mm-hmm. Now, is cocaine a painkiller also? No, it, it is. All right, uh, let's see. So contraindications for naloxone. It says use with caution in narcotic dependent patients. Use with caution in neonates of narcotic addicted mothers. Uh, why would it tell you to use with caution in narcotic dependent patients? They're dependent on it. They're dependent on it. They've, they've, They've done whatever they had to do. They got the money. They got these narcotics. They got a real good buzz going. You show up with your Narcan and push it, you ruin their buzz. These people will fight you. Straight out of a coma. Straight out of a coma, they will fight you. Okay? And listen, and I'm not going to get too deep into this, but a lot of times the rate in which you push a medication makes a difference too. What do we already say? What's the main concern with narcotics? It's that respiratory depression, right? So you show up to somebody's overdose in narcotics, either, either they're not breathing at all or maybe they're breathing two to four times a minute. Obviously, that's not going to sustain life. So what you need to do, have I ever told you all the term uh, uh, titrate to effect. Have we talked about that? Basically, you push just enough to get your desired effect. If you're going to titrate naloxone to effect, because you don't want to fight with a bunch of people, right? So if you push just enough to get them respirations back up to within normal limits, 
but they're still asleep, that might be a good thing, right? Because then you don't have to fight with them, but they're not in danger anymore. And I'm going to tell you, if you push that really fast too, they're going to come up off that stretcher, they're going to probably projectile vomit, and then they're going to whoop your backside. So you just push it real slow. Titrate to effect. Get them respirations back up. What's the normal dosage of, of Narcan? 0 0.4 to 2 milligrams. Okay. 0 0.4 to 2 milligrams. Recommended dose, 2 milligrams. You can repeat about 5 minutes after that if you need to. But again, any, any dosages, any repeat dosages, you want to talk to medical control about it first. And... Um, Again, the, the respiratory depression is, is the big thing. It's, uh, let's see, uh, drug interactions is in, incompatible with bisulfite and alkaline solutions. Supplied 0 0.4 milligrams per milliliter. And it can be pushed IV or intranasal. That's how law enforcement officers are, are pushing it now, right? With those little atomizers. They take the syringe and they put a little atomizer on it and they squirt it in their, in the, in their noses. And the, the mucous membrane in the nose absorbs the, the Narcan. That way they can give the, the uh, effects of the, they can reverse the effects of the narcotic without starting an IV or anything else. Just squirt it in their nose. Save a life. Just like that. Y'all have seen the videos. Huh? Yeah. So it works. But again, uh, titri you're going to titrate to effect. It's, sorry to no, you're fine. You know how like those uh, like football players, they get knocked out on the field? Those athletic trainers, what is that they put on their, towards their nose to like wake them up? Is that <laughs> yeah, no, that's not Narcan. That's, uh, they call it the... Uh, it's smelling sauce is what oh, they call it, but it's ammonia tablets. Okay, gotcha. We used to carry those on the ambulances too, but you know they can't. You can't give ammonia tablets and stuff like that to to folks like us because <laughs> you know it just it don't work out. So, all right. Any questions about Narcan or naloxone? How much is it over the counter? I don't know. I've never bought any over the counter. It costs us about six dollars a box. So we're cheap, or would be like cheaper. Uh, I would assume we, we're getting it less expensive than over the counter, but I don't know. There you go. I the next one we need to talk about is nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin is a vasodilator. That is the class. The mechanism of action is a smooth muscle relaxant acting on vascular, bronchial, uterine, and intestinal smooth muscle. Dilation of arterioles and veins in the periphery reduces preload and afterload of the heart, decreases the work of the heart, and thereby myocardial oxygen demand. So to begin with, who's going to get nitroglycerin? Who will you assist nitro with? Someone's having chest pains. Is that the first thing you're going to do for them? Now, a lot of, several of these that we talked about and one more that we will talk about, um, 
we're all look, we're looking at chest pains, right? So if someone's having chest pains, what's the first thing you're going to give them? Uh, they used to teach us, and I'm going to go ahead and tell you all this just so you remember it. Some of it is out of your scope of practice. Some of it has kind of been changed. But people who were having chest pains fell under the MONA protocol. MONA. So what do you think we gave them? To begin with, if someone's having chest pains, position of comfort is the first thing, right? Because you're assuming they're having a heart attack, so you want to make them as comfortable as you can, so maybe kind of limit that tachycardia, right? Because the faster that heart's beating, the more oxygen it demands, correct? So if you put them in a position of comfort, um, theoretically you're slowing that heart rate down a little bit, and literally could save heart tissue. So we used to go by the MONA protocol. What do you, and that would tell you what we would always do for chest pain patients. Anybody want to take a guess what those stand for? Mm. O's for oxygen. O's oxygen. Nitro. Nitro. Adrenaline. Aspirin. Aspirin, no, don't give them adrenaline. That'd be the, that'd be the worst thing. So the M stands for morphine. Of course, now obviously that's beyond the EMT and the advanced uh, protocol or, or scope of practice. But a lot of places are going to, to fentanyl anyhow, as opposed to morphine, because morphine affects blood pressure uh, a lot worse than fentanyl does. So, but just so, and I tell you that just so maybe you can help you remember, uh, Mona. Even though you're not giving morphine. You're making them as comfortable as you can with a position of comfort, not letting them walk around, don't let them work. They're definitely going to get oxygen. If they have nitroglycerin, you can assist them with that. If they have aspirin, you can assist them with that as well. That is what chest pain patients get from us, okay? But looking at the nitroglycerin specifically, it is a vasodilator. And one thing in here, the mechanism of action it says it dilates those vessels, it dilates, dilates those coronary arteries, and it decreases the preload and afterload of the heart. Um, excuse me, not the, the preload. It, um, yeah, that's what it says. But long story short, if the vessels are larger, and you've given them that chewable aspirin, so you're getting around the, that clot now, right? Those platelets that have lumped together in the coronary arteries that's restricting blood flow. Now you've given them aspirin, so it's not allowing that, that clump of platelets to get any larger. The vessel's bigger, so the blood can flow around that clump of platelets now, right? So it's delivering more oxygen, and it's not having to work as hard to deliver the oxygen. So if, if it's working, if it's not having to work as hard, then therefore it's not demanding more what? Oxygen. So it needs less, but delivering more at the same time. Does that make sense? When the, so when they say reduces the preload and afterload, that's what they're talking about with that. It's delivering more oxygen because of the dilation and therefore it's requiring less oxygen because it's not having to work as hard, okay? So, <clears throat> indications for nitro. Acute 
angina pectoris, chest pains, ischemic chest pain, hypertension, congestive heart failure, pulmonary edema. All those reasons would indicate sublingual nitroglycerin, okay? Uh, but again, call medical control. Contraindicated, the biggest contraindication to nitroglycerin is hypotension. If they don't have a systolic pressure of over 100 millimeters of mercury, don't give it. If they don't have a systolic pressure of more than 100 millimeters of mercury, don't give it. It's contraindicated. So hypotension, hypovolemia, intracranial bleeding or head injury would contraindicate that. If they've sustained a blow and let's say they've got a little bitty leak in one of the vessels in their brain, then you give them nitro and it does what to the vessels? Causes them to dilate or get bigger. So if the vessel gets bigger, what happens to the hole? It gets bigger. You've increased the bleeding. You've promoted intracranial pressure. So any chance that they, that they might have a, a, a bleed going on in their head, you would not give nitroglycerin, okay? Previous administration of Viagra, Levitra, Cialis, or similar agents in the last 24 to 36 hours. We've all seen the commercials, right? As this may cause an unsafe drop in blood pressure, right? What do those eat, those erectile dysfunction medications, what do they do? Send the blood. Vasodilation. That's what causes the erection, all right? So if they've already taken those and then you give them nitrates for chest pain, you've caused it to dilate more, you're going to bottom their blood pressure out, okay? It's not just a funny commercial, it's real. Can you give them a Viagra as a... No, you will not give anybody a Viagra for any reason. All right? You don't give nitroglycerin to pediatric patients either. It, that's not listed in the book here. Hypotension, hypovolemia, possibility of a brain bleed. You don't give it to pediatric patients, Okay? Those are contraindications. Adverse reactions for nitro is a headache. If you give them a nitroglycerin tablet, you put it under their tongue, they should feel it fizzing because it'll kind of fizz under their tongue. And then about a few minutes later, you need to ask them, hey, is anything happening? Does it, has anything changed? They should tell you, hey, I've got a pretty good headache right now because that's what the nitro does, vasodilation. What causes a lot of headaches? Vasodilation in the head. So the tablet should give them a headache. If they say, no, I don't have a headache, you might want to double check the date on your nitro tablets because they may not be any good anymore, okay? Also, the nitroglycerin tablets, have y'all ever seen them in those little bottles? What color is that glass? brown or dark right because nitroglycerin is affected by sunlight if they're exposed to sunlight it they may not be any good anymore they're light sensitive they'll give them you know, so if you dump a tablet out in your hand to, to give a patient in your bare hand what's gonna happen to you you're gonna get a bad headache 
So always make sure you're wearing a glove before you dump that tablet out and give it to, to somebody because it will affect you, from, for, it'll absorb through your skin. So make sure you're wearing your gloves. Uh, headache, hypotension, syncope, reflex tachycardia, flushing, nausea, vomiting, diaphoresis, muscle twitching, all that's possible. So basically, they're having chest pain, you've got them in a position of comfort, you give them 324 milligrams of chewable aspirin, you got them on oxygen, um, and then you're going to assist them with their nitroglycerin. You put one tablet under their tongue, you wait three to five minutes, ask them about a headache, ask them if they've gotten any relief from the chest pain. Reassess vital signs, in particular the blood pressure, right? Because if they still have chest pain, your goal is pain relief because pain causes the heart to do what? Work harder. Work harder, to beat faster. So you're relieving that pain, you're, you're decreasing that oxygen demand, um, and uh, so that's, that's all a good thing. But if you've given them a tablet, you wait three to five minutes, you ask them about their pain. If they still have pain and their blood pressure is still over 100 systolic, you could repeat the dose. You could usually repeat it, you know, give it to them three times as long as the blood pressure supports it. But always involve medical control. Okay? Uh, drug interactions, nitro would have an additive effect with other vasodilators, just like the ED, erectile dysfunction medications. Now, how supplied, you see a big old long list of numbers, but what I want you to know is 0 0.4 milligrams. Tablets are 0 0.4 milligrams. The route of administration is usually sublingual or under the tongue. Now, if you kind of just flip your page, you'll see uh, nitro paste. <clears throat> Nitroglycerin also comes in a paste that you could squeeze out like toothpaste on these little pieces of paper and kind of tape to their chest. It's kind of an old school way of doing it, but and the doctor might prescribe one inch or two inches of nitro paste. Basically, you would have a piece of paper that would look like a ruler and you would just squeeze out a line to the right length that the doctor had ordered and literally tape it to their chest. Obviously, that route would be transdermal. You don't see that a lot. Typically, you're going to see the tablets, or you may see the spray. If you see the spray, one spray under the tongue is equivalent to one tablet. Okay? Any questions about nitro? Vasodilation, I don't know why that causes a headache specifically, but that, especially with migraines, it's from, from dilation. Don't know. Okay. All right, oral glucose or insta-glucose, uh, glutose, there's all kind of trade names there. But oral glucose is a hyperglycemic, okay? It provides... Uh, quickly absorbed glucose to increase 
blood glucose levels. Obviously, we're talking about someone that is hypoglycemic, showing signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia, but they're still conscious, alert, and oriented, right? Because you're not going to put anything in someone's mouth that's not able to protect their own airway. And typically, being conscious, alert, and oriented tells you they can protect their own airway. If they have altered mentation, you might want to consider it before you put it in their mouth. And if they're unconscious, you most definitely would not, okay? But it basically, it seeps in, uh, in the, what's called the buccal route. B-U-C-C-A-L. Buccal route. That's where you squeeze it right there between the cheek and gum. But oral glucose, like I said, is a hyperglycemic. Uh, 80 to 120 milligrams per deciliter of blood is the normal blood sugar levels. But again, if it's less than 80 plus signs and symptoms of hypoglycemia, then you might want to consider it. Okay. Indications is a conscious patient with suspected hypoglycemia. Contraindications, um, decreased level of consciousness, nausea, vomiting. If they're not able to protect their own airway, you don't put it in their mouth. As far as adverse reactions, it could cause uh, nausea and vomiting in and of itself. Uh, route is oral or buccal like we said buccal is between the cheek and cheek and gum the doses in administration says the for the adult patient should be uh, sipped slowly by patient until clinical improvement noted paste or gels may be fed to the patient or may be placed between the cheek and gum for uh, absorption and again, it's the same on the pediatric patient, so I'm not sure why they broke up the two like that. You give somebody a tube of oral glucose, um, oh, a little bit of, I guess, actual knowledge. Oral glucose, can it go out of date? Where's the expiration date at? It's not printed on there anywhere, but if you look on the back side of the tube, like if this is the tube that part right there where the tube is kind of mashed and heated to kind of once they fill it up it's heated to so it I guess closes and then they cut it you'll have expiration date stamped right in there okay um, so anyhow just nothing for nothing but that's, uh, that's where it's at. And the biggest thing is if, if they're hypoglycemic, showing signs and symptoms, but they're still conscious, alert, and oriented, squirt that between the cheek and gum, um, wait about five minutes, check their blood sugar again, right? And if, uh, if, it, if it's kind of come up a little bit, but there's still issues, you can give them another one, okay? But you gotta question yourself. If you're sitting there on scene and you're giving them tube after tube of oral glucose, you probably need to just go ahead and start an IV and push the sugar intravenously and take them to the hospital because there's something else going on, okay? Usually if one or two tubes don't do it, they need to go. And understand this too, as a general rule, any hypoglycemic patient that is treated in the field needs to go to the doctor because something made that sugar bottom out. 
If someone's non-compliant and you go to them all the time, well, you might know, well, this is just kind of par for the course, nothing out of the ordinary because we come here about once a week or whatever. Uh, but when you go to that compliant diabetic, the one that eats right, takes their medicine right, now all of a sudden they're hypoglycemic, something happened, something has changed. These people need to go to the doctor, okay? So if you treat a hypoglycemic patient in the field and don't take them to the hospital, what's stopping that blood sugar from bottoming out right after you leave and maybe they go unconscious before they can call this time? So you need to always encourage them. If it's a problem, they need to go see a doctor. Any questions about that? Yeah, you just raised an interesting. Suppose they want to... Oxygen is the last medication card. And again, I want y'all to get you some little index cards or pieces of paper. Do it, do it ever how you want to do it. But for each of these medications, you need a medication card. Something that you can carry around with you and study all the indications, contraindications, you know, the, uh, the adverse reactions, the drug interactions. You need to study and know all these things. But the last one we're going to talk about tonight is going to be oxygen. It is a naturally occurring atmospheric gas. How much oxygen is in the atmosphere normally? 21%. Okay. The mechanism of action is it reverses hypoxemia and it is indicated for confirmed or expected hypoxemia, ischemic chest pain, respiratory insufficiency. It can be given prophylactically. That means just in case, <laughs> for the most part. Uh, confirmed or suspected carbon monoxide poisoning. All other causes of decreased tissue oxygenation or decreased levels of consciousness. Uh, sometimes a little bit of oxygen will even help nausea. Your book doesn't say it, but a little bit could actually help with that. Contraindications. When is oxygen truly contraindicated? You're really not going to, I mean, you have to have, all human animals have to have oxygen to live. But just understand that certain emphysema patients, especially if they, they're breathing off of that hypoxic drive that we talked about, if you give them too much oxygen for a prolonged period of time, it could cause them to do what? Stop breathing, right? If that be the case, then you're gonna, you're gonna bag them, you're gonna ventilate them until you get to the hospital. But just be aware of that. Certain patients with COPD, uh, emphysema specifically, uh, will not tolerate oxygen concentrations over 35%. They might stop breathing, okay? Adverse reactions, decreased levels of consciousness, and respiratory depression. Uh, oxygen supplied in, in oxygen cylinders, usually green and white. How do you know you got medical grade oxygen and a medical grade regulator again? What's that system that we learned? Two-prong. Yeah, but there's a name. It is two prongs. What's the name of it? The pin indexing safety system, right? Then you know you've got it. Route of administration for oxygen. It is an inhaled drug, obviously. And oxygen is a medication. It says dosage and administration. You see that big old long thing? But for the most part, with, with the dosage and administration, nasal cannula, 
Non-rebreathing masks and bag valve masks are, are the three main ways that we're going to deliver oxygen. If someone's got a nasal cannula or you're delivering oxygen through a nasal cannula, how many liters per minute will you flow it? One to six liters per minute. And you're delivering what percent concentrations? 24 to 44. And it climbs in increments of four with each liter. So one liter would be 24%, right? Six liters then would be 44%. And it climbs in increments of four percent per liter. Who, at the EMT level, and according to this curriculum, who gets a nasal cannula? Anyone who can't handle a That's right. Those that can't tolerate a mask. Now, it, that breaks from reality because if you put somebody on a non-rebreathing mask, first thing the paramedic's going to do when they get there, especially if they're satin over 94%, first thing the paramedic's going to do is take the nasal cannula off. Just, that's fine. Whatever. Non-rebreathing mask. How many liters per minute will you flow through a non-rebreathing mask? 15. Yeah, it says 10 to 15 liters per minute. What percent concentrations of oxygen will you deliver through a non-rebreathing mask? Like 80 to 95 percent? Depends on whether you conform that metal band tightly around the bridge of their nose, how tight you have the straps, because if any's leaking out from around the side of the mask, then you're, you're not giving them everything that, they, that you could, right? And you got to make sure that bag, that reservoir bag is filled, okay, to get it as well. Another way of delivering oxygen, like I said, is the bag valve mask. You're close to 100%, but you're flowing 15 liters per minute through it, okay? Any questions about oxygen? Any questions about any of these medications we've talked about so far tonight? Yes, 